This is Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source of news and expert opinion on autism research. I'm Lisa Cantrell. In this episode of Spectrum Stories, we look at the genetics of autism. We know that genes play a role in the condition. However, finding genes and then knowing what they do is a challenge. We explore where the field is and where it's headed. There's been really dramatic progress in the last 10 years or so. That's Stefan Sanders, a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. So if we go back about 10 years, there was this idea of candidate genes. And the idea was that a, um, a clever researcher thought to themselves, what do I think autism is? They then selected a gene on that basis and then went to go and find evidence that that gene was responsible for autism. Sanders says that the early methods used in the search for autism genes were not extremely fruitful. Scientists often failed to find a link between their hypothesized candidate gene and autism. Or if they did find a link, it often didn't replicate in another lab with a different sample. When sequencing every gene in the genome became possible, autism research rapidly advanced. Because rather than singling out one gene to look at, scientists could look at all the genes in the genome to find new mutations associated with autism, highlighting new candidate genes. We've now entered this new realm where we're looking at large-scale genetic data or genomic data, so looking across the entire genome. In 2012, the first studies using the technique for autism were published. And in the years following, more studies were conducted. The field now has a list of about 60 genes believed to be associated with the condition. At the top of the list is CHD8, a gene that regulates the structure of chromatin, a mix of DNA and protein that makes up chromosomes, and regulates other genes. Another top autism gene is SCN2A, a gene that codes for proteins called sodium channels that allow sodium to pass into cells. Sanders was a part of the team that found SCN2A. So it's the most exciting gene in, in autism right now. It's a gene which is involved in neuronal communication. So it's responsible for making the action potential, which is how neurons communicate with each other. Even though Sanders is excited about SCN2A, mutations in this gene are not found in all or even most individuals with autism. Only about 0.3% of all cases of autism are the result of a mutation in this particular gene. And the same is true for CHD8, which accounts for approximately 0.25% of all cases. But that does not discourage Sanders. It's not about the total number of people affected. It's about the window into autism that it gives you. Perhaps a related question would be, what percentage of autism has a mechanism which is shown to us by SCN2A or shown to us by CHD8? Sanders and others say genetic research in autism is not about finding and listing all the genes that contribute to it. It's about understanding gene function. Knowing that mutations in SCN2A or CHD8 can cause autism is informative, even if the mutations are rare, because it could tell us something more universal about the biology of the condition. So far, many teams have been investigating de novo mutations. These are mutations that are not inherited from parents and occur spontaneously in the child. These mutations are rare, but they've been the focus of genetic research in part because they're relatively easy to find. However, the majority of cases of autism are not the result of a de novo mutation. Most genetic risk for autism comes from common, complex, inherited variation that we all carry to some degree. 
That's Elise Robinson. She's a genetic epidemiologist at Harvard University. She says common variants, genes that are found in more than 5% of the population, are responsible for most instances of autism. Robinson says her research group is finding differences in how de novo mutations and common variants contribute to autism. The real obvious difference right now is that the de novo variants are very strongly negatively correlated with IQ and global development. Not true of the common variants. Common variants of genes found to be associated with autism exist in the general population. And Robinson says when we look at them in the general population, they correlate to higher IQ. This was very confusing for a couple reasons. First, people with diagnosed autism, on average, have below average IQ. And so it was very confusing to think how this could be happening. Robinson explains that this means that two parents who carry genes that are generally associated with higher intellectual ability may pass on a high percentage of these genes to their child, but that somehow it results in a lower IQ and a possible diagnosis of autism. The findings were published in May of 2017 in the journal Nature Genetics. Although they are counterintuitive, Robinson says she's confident they are real effects. The same results have been found in other conditions, including bipolar disorder. Much of the genetic research in autism, including studies investigating de novo mutations and common variants, has focused primarily on the exome, the protein coding region of DNA, which accounts for only about 2% of the genome. The other 98% or so of the genome does not code for proteins. Researchers have begun to look at this part of our genome to ask which sites are associated with autism. It's a challenging task, though. We know a lot about the protein coding regions, That's not the case for the non-coding segments. We don't have that same blueprint for what's important and what isn't. That's Michael Talkowski. He's a geneticist at Harvard University. He says that because we don't yet know what parts of the non-coding genome are important, it's hard to know where to look when asking about autism risk. One option is for researchers to target specific sites they believe might be important for autism, in a sense, to reduce the search space. However, Talkowski says that exploring the genome with preconceived notions about what sites are important is not the best approach, because researchers may overlook crucial locations. The other option, and the one his research group takes, is to look across all locations in the genome, agnostically, for regions associated with autism. An agnostic approach means testing regions at every point on the genome, which poses challenges for statistical analyses. Our analyses have basically fallen on the side of saying, I'm going to treat them all as if I don't know anything about them. Where here is there a, an odds ratio or a, a statistical difference that makes me believe that I am in the right place based entirely on the data itself and not on what I know about the data? However, when more locations are included in an analysis, the threshold for statistical significance goes up, making it more difficult to find associations without very large sample sizes. But Talkowski is adamant about starting broad. He says looking agnostically is a method researchers have also used previously in the exome. And that has had a really good record of success. And so we've kind of been treating whole genome sequencing the same way. Talkowski and other researchers have only begun to look at the non-coding region of the genome, but they say it may prove to be an important piece of the puzzle in autism genetics. All of the researchers I spoke to said that ultimately the goal of all these approaches is to understand genetic pathways underlying autism, 
No single gene or mutation leads to autism. Rather, genes collaborate in networks, and the specific genetic contributors vary from one person to the next. Raphael Bernier, a clinician and researcher at the University of Washington in Seattle, says understanding these varying causal pathways is important for developing individualized treatments. We're kind of on this wave of precision medicine for autism coming up. 20 years from now, I, I imagine that we'll be able to do genetic testing and then say, okay, great. We actually think that this, this compound um, may be helpful for you, and then we target that for a given individual. Bernier says we also should not overlook another outcome of genetic research. By identifying the varying genetic causes of autism, we can group individuals in more meaningful ways and create communities of families with similar challenges. We're able to link families together into these very powerful family groups that are connecting around the particular uh, genetic uh, event for their child. So, so that provides an immediate powerful benefit for families. The second step is that a lot of these family groups are tied with scientists, and that allows the scientists to really engage with the families uh, to drive science forward. This was an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source of news and expert opinion on autism research. To read more about research on genetics, visit our special report on the topic at spectrumnews.org. I'm Lisa Cantrell.